From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives. My name is Abraham Kim. I'm here with my co-host, Jessica Lee. How are you, Jessica? Good. Thank you, Abe. Uh, we have a, a wonderful interview today with Do Young Kim, who is one of our uh, members at CKA. Uh, but she has really made a name for herself as being a, a leading thought leader on helping the general public understand about the current situation on the Korean Peninsula. She is currently uh, an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security, as well as a columnist for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. But I I've seen her probably a whole lot on CNN as she, as we recently had the Hanoi summit and the various other uh, summits between uh, President Trump, uh, as well as Chairman Kim Jong-un. Uh, but I think from a more personal standpoint, I think what's interesting is that she's a Korean-American, was born here in, in the United States, but went back to Korea at a young age and worked at um, both in the Korean context as well as the U.S. context. So we're out for a very fascinating interview. Yes. And, you know, this interview was uh, conducted uh, last month uh, here in Washington during Do Young's visit. And so uh, some of the things that we comment on may uh, not be as topical, <laughs> but uh, definitely, you know, I think the, the, the overall issue of U.S. Uh, policy uh, toward East Asia and North Korea really took center stage uh, during our conversation, given her expertise and our interest here at CKA. And I think, you know, Duyun's comment towards the end about, you know, encouraging Korean Americans to speak up and to engage our elected officials about our thoughts on this issue, I thought was particularly powerful. So without further ado, we will turn to the interview now. My name is Jessica Lee, and I'm Senior Director at the Council of Korean Americans. And I'm your host of CKA's podcast, Korean American Perspectives. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Doo Kim, an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security, a columnist at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and a visiting senior research fellow at the Korean Peninsula Future Forum in Seoul. She is also an associate member of CKA. So Doo it's great to see you here in Washington. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great. So I know many of our listeners have read your analyses and, and your um, commentaries in the media, and so it's great to also see a side of you that maybe most of us don't get to see, mm. which is sort of who you are <laughs> and where you studied and what inspired you to pursue this career in international relations and national security. So first I thought I'd ask, you know, tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up. I know you went to Syracuse and Georgetown and has done a lot of um, academic work here in the state. So can you tell us about your uh, journey to uh, to this field. Mm. Well, that's a long story, but um, so I was born in the U.S. and my family moved back to Korea when I was around seven or eight years old. So I kind of did 
the reverse of what most Korean Americans do. <laughs> um, and so I grew up in Seoul. Uh, and for college, I came back to the States. I went back to Seoul again uh, for my first career and then came back to the States uh, for grad school. And I started working in Washington. And then, um, and now I'm back in Seoul. And I'm literally, <laughs> it's, it's split half and half, I think, by now. Right. So tell us, you know, at what point did you decide that this was, you know, something that you wanted to pursue? And and this interest in international affairs um, and security issues, you know, did that come to you when you were a student or, you know, as you kind of worked and and really was out in the field reporting? Yeah, you know, I I hate to disappoint you, but the work that I'm doing now just kind of happened. I didn't plan or strategize for to end up where I am now. Um, I know that might sound really disappointing, <laughs> but... Uh, so no strategy. <laughs> I know, I know strategy in it. life. <laughs> uh, <My> But I, I was always interested in um, international relations, world affairs, but I never, I really, I didn't plan on doing this. I never imagined I would. I always wanted to uh, help people um, give back, do something helpful in the world. And uh, at a young age in college, or actually even before college, when I was growing up, um, since I think middle school, maybe back to middle school and high school, uh, the way I wanted to help, I thought back then was, um, and I don't want to sound cliche, but it was through medicine. <laughs> I know that sounds like your stereotypical Korean American um, <laughs> job and vision, but um, but I but I specifically was interested in surgery, and so I thought that that was going to be my destiny. Um, and, but I did horribly in college. I was pre-med English, so I was dual major, uh, and I did English and literature. But um, and what we, I did horribly in what we call orgo, which is organic chemistry. And then, but I had, I always had this itch, this this active itch in me um, to do. Uh, and so after college, I thought, okay, you know what? Let's um, let's just do something very active. I'd sign up with a job. Didn't matter what it was. Um, and for a year or two, and then let's, um, get my act together and apply to med school, even though I probably didn't have a good chance anyway, cause I did so poorly in pre-med, but, uh, and so it, it had to be anything. And so I stumbled into journalism and, and it, wow. to cut a long story short, I mean, I, after college, I was going to stay in the U S and work, but I, I went to Seoul stumbled into journalism, and that's the other half of my interest, right? So I was an English major, so I always loved writing, uh, but I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be a TV journalist. Of, of all things, I thought it'd be print, because I like to analyze, I like to... Um, and so that just kind of fell in my lap, and so I was like, okay, because it's, you know, only one year or two, max. Um, but I got thrown into my first year of employment. I got, um, I was asked to, I jumped, I leaped a few, I guess, decades of my career, and I, um, I was asked to be the correspondent of the Korean Foreign uh, Unification Ministry. So about six months in, um, I was asked by my boss to do this. And um, I I was 21, and I was this big-headed 21-young, fearless person who said, boss, this is very, um, this is not smart strategy on the part of our company. (laughs) 
even though it's supposed to be an honor to be a correspondent at a major uh, ministry, but sure. and this is this is not good strategy because I I'm too young and everybody else there is like decades older than me and I'm supposed to butt heads with them and be able to just walk up to the minister and just ask all these questions and and so he's like okay that's that's nice go do it and I said okay fine um, and so then six months later I was asked to be foreign ministry correspondent and so I did both and so I did that for the rest of my time um, as a journalist and I was really grateful because that's where I really you know I had that interest and a curiosity about the world but to actually witness things in the field the way it worked meaning just you know the way policy making works the way government works the way um, international diplomacy international relations work especially the way negotiations work that just fascinated me and so I thought okay one more year one more year and then I'll maybe I'll go back to medical school or apply first study and then apply um, but then it just years went by and I just thought you know this is this is really fascinating. And and it was fascinating also because it was such a challenge to me. Because again, I never planned on it. And I never thought I was really good at it or anything. So I think that is also what um, drove me to to learn more. And then I just got hooked. And I, I just got, I got so knee deep into it that um, it just, it grew on me. Mm. Uh, and so that was, I guess, the turning point of <laughs> uh, journalism. And then I was really lucky again. Um, I, I went to grad school a bit late compared to others. Um, but uh, I was finally ready to my current mentor he actually um, put the thought in my the idea in my head of like well why don't you have you thought about studying international relations and not journalism for grad school and so that was another challenge that was put to me um, put forth to me and so I finally after several years later I said okay yes I'm now ready to go to grad school and the thought was to marry my my field experiences and knowledge with um, with the books Uh, and so that's just kind of how it all began. Wow. It's like baptism under fire. Oh my goodness, I know. <laughs> the 21-year-old uh, you out in the uh, highest levels of government. Um, that's fantastic. Um, so there's so much to talk about, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, I, I do want to spend just uh, one more question on sort of the, the beginning stage of your mm-hmm, career sure. that you just described. You know, obviously looking back now, having spent almost two decades you know, working on uh, security issues uh, with a focus on East Asia, you know, and and your background in uh, TV journalism, so fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking back and and you know reflecting on that time, like you said, you know, where you were really thrown in uh, mm-hmm. a field that you knew little, but you really had to learn mm-hmm. quickly. I mean, how has that helped you in your current positions to be thoughtful and mm-hmm. to you know, know where to find information? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great question. And I'm so grateful for my previous life as a journalist, because one unique aspect, and I use all the skills that I've learned then, I still use them now, and they're all applicable, they're all transferable, very surprisingly. So I I never thought that would be the case. Uh, But and I think I'm even more grateful just because... um, the way the Korean media and the system there works is if you, I was on, and if you are, which I was, um, part of a ministry press corps. And that's and at that time, it was highly exclusive. You're either in it or you're not. And if you're on the press corps covering the foreign ministry or covering the unification ministry, you're in, which means you've got full access to anybody. Uh, and so 
we would spend and I would have my own desk in the ministry. And so I'm spending back then it was a six day work week in Korea. And so I'm spending six to seven days um, in the ministry at the ministry, just mingling and talking with government officials. And it all spills over into lunch, then dinner and then drinks because Koreans love to drink. And a lot of the discussions happen over drinks. Um, and so because of that unique system there, uh, it, it's not only a journalist covering um, straight news of what happened in the world or in your beats. It's not just he said, she said in quotes. You really get the inside scoop. And this is what I meant by um, a while ago when I said uh, you really learned, I learned about policy making and negotiations because you, you hear firsthand, or I guess maybe it's literally secondhand, but from the actual negotiators, from the actual policymakers, what goes on in their mind and how they think about these issues. And interestingly, so I thought it was just a given back then, but if I, in hindsight, I find that interesting that we, meaning journalists who are part of that press corps and the policymakers, would have such intimate discussions where there, we would bounce around ideas back and forth. And what is fascinating about that is that is exactly what we do in the American, in the Washington think tank community as analysts and experts. We have that relationship with policymakers. Uh, we're the ones who do bounce around those ideas and give policy recommendations. And so, uh, and so in that sense, what I do now in, in, in um, think tank is in terms of the skill set. It's really not that much different from what I was doing, what I had to do back as a journalist with a beat and part of an exclusive press corps. And so that also means um, learning, you know, how to reach out to contacts, who to talk to. And also, and also the one of the most important um, things is learning and knowing the ground rules and the rules of the road and learning how to protect your sources. Because even now, as experts and analysts and even professors, we write, we publish um, publicly, we give media commentary, and you really don't want to burn your um, contacts and your sources. Um, but at the same time, we being part of civil society, we want to play our role too. So we're not going to, of course, no one's going to be a government mouthpiece, but and so we're going to play the checks and balances role too, but also where credit is due, give them credit, um, but also push back and raise red flags if the government or any government is going in a direction that we don't think is the right direction. That's really important. <laughs> Were there any key lessons in the beginning stage of your career that really informed your understanding of, you know, how things work and operate? Mm -hmm. with, I, usually for me, you know, I take my greatest lessons from mistakes that right. I've made. Uh, and as, especially as a young person, I've made plenty of mistakes, but I've also, you know, really learned a lot about myself and my mm -hmm. limitations uh, and, and resiliency through those experiences. So I wondered if there was one particular lesson or experience that has really stayed with you since the beginning of your career. Well, having been thrown into a beat um, at such a young age, uh, it forces you to, I guess, so-called grow up fast. Right? And, and back then, I was one of, I think, two or three female reporters on the press corps. Now it's like, I think, half or even, they're the majority now in Korea. Um, and so, you know, being young, a woman, uh, covering security, foreign affairs, uh, South Korean foreign policy, and all that. So, you know, you have to... 
um, learn to be professional, smart, savvy, and you just really have to grow up really quickly. <laughs> um, and stay true to who you are too, you know, mm. to have integrity, um, and, and to really know that yes, compared to other veteran journalists in the field, I mean, of course I can't compare. And so that, that, that motivated me to like any job that's given to you, uh, to really study up and get and try to get as smart as you can to learn your your issue area as much as you can so that you can do your job. Uh, and so some of that, you know, I think I feel like a lot of us go through, whether you're a man or a woman, um, you know, you go through some of that in life uh, with with whatever task is at hand. Uh, and I think I think some of those lessons or experiences and some of those skills. Um, I've reflected back on that and I'm really, I'm really grateful. I think back then, you know, I, I, I won't deny that there were some struggles, right. Um, because of the, my circumstances. Um, but, but you learn to persevere and you learn to press forward. That's great. Well, so I want to kind of shift gears now Mm -hmm. and, and talk about current affairs and your current positions. Um, and, and, you know, your views on some of the most recent developments, mm-hmm. particularly related to North Korea, given uh, some of the interest uh, within our membership and our mm-hmm. uh, uh, membership and the public. Um, of course, today you were sitting here in Washington uh, at a very surreal time in some <laughs> sense <laughs> with the sudden departure of the National Security Advisor, John Bolton. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on that. But, um, you know, wanted to start off with maybe just, you know, at the macro level, you know, what mm-hmm. keeps you up at night? You know, knowing how you've you know, been looking at this issue for mm-hmm. quite some time and, and the region um, and you, you come to D.C. and so, you know, regularly to know sort of sort of the dynamics and so what at the end of the day really keeps you you know preoccupied in terms Mm -hmm. of you know the key challenges when Mm -hmm. it comes to um the north korea nuclear issue yeah so you know it's ironic because you know these issues on the one hand these issues are extremely serious and important um but what's ironic is on north korea uh, the the themes and the issues tend to repeat themselves for decades, and so uh, there's a lot less staying up at night, or <laughs> there's a lot less losing sleep. Um, but that said, again, they are very concerning, and so what what really concerns me when it really comes to North Korea is um, any potential scenarios for um, miscalculation that might lead to inadvertent spiraling into a conflict, right? And, and so that's what we were most concerned about during Fire and Fury in, in 2017, um, especially with um, a president like Trump. Uh, and so those scenarios, the other scenarios are, um, oh my God, what, what really is concerning to me is how the level of sophistication and how advanced North Korea's nuclear weapons have gotten. And we could, we would never have imagined this could ever be. Uh, and I think part of that in hindsight was at the time, the world and American policymakers didn't, we underestimated North Korea's ability. And now here we are. Uh, and so my concern going forward is that the North would be able to really perfect their nuclear weapons so that they do have fully functioning and reliable nuclear weapons. And that is a scary scenario. And so this is where um, diplomacy that is underway, there have been some up and down, ups and downs, and there's been a long pause for a while, but, um, but that's where negotiations play a key role. Mm. So I think that's all really interesting. Uh, and I'd love to 
kind of get your additional thoughts on, you know, where you just left off, which is, you know, since June with yeah. the, you know, uh, the historic meeting at, at Panmunjom, we haven't really seen, at least publicly, you know, um, robust dialogue and high-level meetings, you know, kind of taking place to, um, you know, come to a, an agreement. Uh, between the United States and North Korea. So, you know, why do you think that is? Is that a combination of factors in the U.S. and um, North Korea? Or is there, do you think, something in particular that's that's really uh, causing uh, this uh, delay in, in progress? Yeah, you know, there are many factors at play here, but uh, it's ultimately, and no, and in no particular order, uh, there different negotiating styles. Um, part of it is uh, North Korea, they like to stall and delay uh, negotiations, draw them out as long as possible. Part of it is, um, you know, early on before Singapore and at Singapore, realizing, oh, maybe we can get away with a lot of stuff. Maybe we can get Trump to side with us and agree on things that we want without um, his the bureaucracy and the government liking what we want. Uh, and then in, in Hanoi, realizing, oh, we t Trump really isn't that easy, as easy as we thought, but still trying to just get at Trump and bypass the bureaucracy. And, and the other part is, um, you know, in, in North Korea's eyes, it's pretty clear that they think that the U.S. is not being bold enough and creative enough, whereas... Washington things, especially under a Trump administration, is extremely bold and creative right now, very unconventional. Uh, and so we're seeing a situation where both sides want to, I guess, so-called go big and go bold, but their definition of going big is very different. Uh, and so ultimately, you know, the, the aim of negotiations is really, of course, to try to basically have a nuclear-free North Korea, um, but at what cost? And so that's where the bargain, the bargaining, the price of the bargains come into play, and that's for um, the negotiators to figure out. But on North Korea's side uh, position, um, I mean, if you were Kim Jong-un, why wouldn't you want to keep your nuclear arsenal and get as many economic benefits as possible? Mm. So we can imagine that's their game plan, too. So you've got two sides who are operating on completely different um, playing fields, wanting different outcomes. Mm. And it's all a matter of, can you reach a compromise on anything? Uh, and so that's the task at hand mm. for the negotiators right now. You know, as an American with a unique vantage point uh, in Seoul and Washington, I uh, would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, the state of U.S.-South Korea alliance. You know, it must be, um, I mean, it, for me, <laughs> speaking mm -hmm. personally, um, you know, it, it has been such a roller coaster of a ride the mm -hmm. last two years of, of both the inter-Korean talks as well mm -hmm. as U.S.-North Korea talks. And so can you share with our listeners, you know, what where you think stand you know, in terms of the overall state of U.S.-South Korea relations? I know that's a very big question <laughs> that we can talk for an hour about, but, you know, what what, thi what things kind of come to your mind in terms of, you know, how you think the relationship is, um, particularly with respect to dealing with uh, mm -hmm. North Korea? Um, the U.S.-South Korea alliance is just like any alliance in any human relationship, um, it will ebb and flow. You'll have some sticky points and you'll have some great high points and some not so high points. Uh, but I think overall, despite all the ups and downs and um, hurdles that might have arisen over the decades and even under the, each administration, even this one, uh, I think the alliance is still strong. Um, and that's clear. But it, it, 
it tends to get a little tricky sometimes depending on the issue at, at, um, that they're dealing with and how they're going to deal with the issues. And so the other, and tying this to the previous question that you asked is one other concern that I do have is um, Trump's um, dismissal of alliances. He doesn't care about alliances. And he's not, he doesn't, he, he does not hide the fact and he's not ashamed to hide that fact. And so, um, that does not help anyone. It's not just with the Korea alliances, it's with all American alliances. Uh, and so that is a concern. Uh, but just like any relationship, you know, I, I do have, despite their differences, um, that they might have, whether it's ideologically or on strategy or on ultimate objectives. Uh, I do have um, faith in both governments and their and um, the bureaucracies to be able to work things out to eventually get to um, a happy medium mm -hmm. and, uh, and to and to think more strategically mm -hmm. and to be able to continue developing and uh, upgrading the alliance. Now, one, uh, there, but that said, I, I, you know, personally, I do. There is one point that is unfortunate, which is, um, yes, the North Korea issue is extremely important and that should be a priority. Yes, uh, but at the same time, we've kind of regressed. So we went through about ten years of previous administrations trying to upgrade and expand the alliance to beyond Korean Peninsula to really tackle global issues. And that's what were called the new frontiers issues. Uh, but now it's, um, the Korean government now is much more preoccupied with inter-Korean issues and North Korea, more so than previous administrations. Uh, and so for me, it's a bit unfortunate. I wish we could continue to, um, despite the differences that they may have on North Korea and on other issues, I, I wish they could focus on other broader global, regional and global issues. And these include anything from like energy security to um, fighting um, um, pandemic diseases to, you know, there's a, a range of other challenges in the world that they have been working on, but that uh, the working level on those issues are just basically twiddling their thumbs and waiting for directives. Mm. Well, this is not uh, one of the questions that, uh, you know, I had intended to ask, but your comments and, and uh, your eloquent kind of thought processes uh, led me to kind of think about another dimension of U.S. Mm. alliance in East Asia, which is Japan. Right. And so obviously the situation between South Korea and Japan uh, looking very dire, um, and so wondered if you could share any, you know, analysis or thoughts on, you know, what you think uh, is happening between those two countries. Obviously, another very big question, but <laughs> you know, um, this seems to be uh, an issue that may not be as uh, widely appreciated here in Washington as mm. maybe it should be, and. Um, you know, I think more people should be thinking about the ramifications mm -hmm. of, of, of a collapse of a relationship between South Korea and Japan and mm -hmm. the impact on the United States, you know, national security interests right. in East Asia. So do you have any thoughts on, on that? Mm -hmm. So it, it certainly does not help that, that America's two closest allies in the region are not getting along. Um, and, but that's also nothing new. Uh, and each time it's, it is a bit different, uh, but in the grand scheme of things that the South Korea Japan uh, relationship also ebbs and flows. Um, and so it's important that all three countries, um, try to compartmentalize and, and to, on the one hand, whether you're going to fight things out or whatnot, but on the other track to work and cooperate on issues that are of mutual interest. And that is, a mutual challenge like North Korea or other, whether it's natural disasters or other issues. Um, but we've been seeing, uh, but that's been a challenge, uh, 
um, this time. Uh, we're seeing um, the Korea-Japan uh, challenges spill into concerns about, okay, will the three countries be able to cooperate on North Korea on their common challenge? Uh, and that still remains a question. There are a lot of concerns in Seoul that um, there would be consequences. Uh, and so, you know, each... You know, as you know very well, the, the Korea-Japan relationship is, is very complicated and complex, and it's deeply rooted in history, um, for all good reason. Um, but we have seen different South Korean governments handle the issues a little bit differently. Um, and, and that really, it's just a matter of... Um, differences in ideology too. And so we've seen certain governments, um, we've seen them be a bit more, um, to compartmentalize and be able to cooperate on North Korea quietly without advertising and publicizing, whereas other administrations in South Korea have not been able to do that. And that's what we're dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. So I hope that, um, whether it's through quiet diplomacy with the U S facilitating, having quiet discussions, uh, I, I, the, South Korea and Japan really need to find a solution and a way forward. Mm. Do you think that unification of the two Koreas is possible within our lifetime, or do you think we're poised for more of a permanent division between these two very different nations? You know, if I think if we... Very realistically, it doesn't seem like unification would happen in our lifetime, as much as people would want it to. It'd be great to, um, but the direction that we're seeing, not just North Korea's um, strategic, strategic objectives, but also we're seeing the different relationships in the region, uh, it seems to be highly unlikely. Um, but the other factor which is interesting is uh, more and more South Koreans of the younger generation uh, are not interested. They don't care. Uh, about unification, and, uh, and and when I say younger, I'm talking about like the 20s and 30s and, and younger college students. Uh, their number one preoccupation, unlike the past, is um, not North Korea and not security, but more of their day-to-day -day living and their personal financial prosperity. And so there there is a growing concern among that generation um, of would of South Korea having to shoulder the costs of and the consequences of um, abrupt unification. Hmm. And so in principle, I mean, I would love to see it happen, of course, uh, but it is a matter of how that happens, how unification happens um, and when it happens hmm. is going to be key. My last question is, you know, wanted to see what you thought about the role of Korean Americans mm. in, you know, being... Uh, thought partners and, mm -hmm. you know, policymakers and, and leaders who help shape the future of the Korean mm -hmm. Peninsula. Can you talk about what you've seen and what you're maybe con uh, starting to see in terms of Korean Americans playing, you know, bigger and bigger role in this mm -hmm. space? Oh, I definitely think Korean Americans uh, have a role to play, a very important role uh, to play in the U.S. and uh, globally, too. And uh, as you know, Korean Americans are in a very unique position to offer um, 
advice, suggestions, and help in any way, whether it's through uh, policy recommendations or whether it's uh, more tangibly through um, any type of humanitarian assistance or whether it's, you know, if there is unification, um, having Korean-American um, business people and um, NGOs help out on the ground. And, and so there's there's a range of things I think Korean Americans can do to contribute. And it's, um, and, and Korean Americans with um, all the history and, and f- family history too, with many mm-hmm. having immigrated from Korea with generations either still in, relatives still in North Korea even. Um, I think you know, have a role and, and should, uh, if if they are so led to, uh, to, to voice their opinions in the American national debate uh, and to make sure that their um, congressional leaders and their political leaders and their president um, knows of um, the Korean American voice, what, what, what we want mm. to see happen. And, and as you know very well, the North Korea issue is a very divisive issue, not just here, it's, it's everywhere. Anyone working the issue, anyone living in Korea, uh, the North Korea issue is a very divisive issue mm-hmm. and it's highly politicized right. and it's split among political divides. Okay, but but if we can get to, if we can have a discussion and agreement on principles and eventual outcomes. Now, how we get there, that's where it's going to be divided. But uh, it's important to agree on the outcomes um, and and basic principles. And I think that's something where um, Korean Americans can really play a role here in the United States. That's great. Well, I wish we had another hour oh, I know. <laughs> to talk because we just uh, really uh, superficially touched a lot of these uh, big picture questions and issues that are affecting us today. But uh, I want to thank you, Duyam, for being oh, with us here so in Washington. Much. This was very enriching. Uh, this is this. Uh, this was Jessica Lee and Duyang Kim, who's adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security, and. Um, I said your long bio in the no, beginning. That's okay. <laughs> These so think tank titles know. are long. Yes, yes. <laughs> it is very long. I'm afraid I will fumble <laughs> if I say it. And we'll have to Everybody re-record does. everything. <laughs> we fumble too when we say it, so it's okay. <laughs> but uh, this was wonderful, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Oh, thank, thank you. you. What a sweeping interview uh, of so many different issues. I think that's one of the uh, one of the advantages of, of interviewing such a knowledgeable uh, expert who knows uh, uh, really about the entire region. I think you went from Jessica, you went from U.S. Uh, Korea relations to South Korea Japan relations uh, to unification, and uh, in particular, I thought it was pretty honest and frank, uh, especially Tuyun's views on unification and whether it would happen or not. Uh, so, uh, well, thank you for that interview. Yes, and you know, I think it's really useful and important for our community to support and uplift voices within the Korean American community that are shaping American public discussions, such as national security. And so, I think Tuyan is uh, playing an important role in that regard. And so, I think it's great to continue to highlight our leaders in the Korean American community. Uh, through this podcast, which you can access on our website, councilka.org, as well as download on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. So continue to tune in, and please share your thoughts and responses to these episodes, and we will see you next time. Thanks. 
Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.